to you again, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke and to the second chapter. We will this morning finish our series called The Songs of Christmas, which was a series, a four-part series focused on the four songs that ring out in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We looked at the Song of Zechariah, the Song of Mary, the Angel's Song, and this morning we'll be looking at the Song of Simeon. If you'll turn in your Bibles again to the second chapter of Luke, we'll begin at verse 22, which starts on page 1019, 1019, on the Bible in your pew. One thing I want you to notice just in the first paragraph here is how often Luke is clear that what Joseph and Mary are doing is according to the command of God. Begin in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the sight, excuse me, in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord, and so again we say, Thanks be to God. As I'm sure you know, Christian parents are given the weighty and glorious task of caring for their children, for their needs, both physical and spiritual. We change diapers, feed them, play with them, and we teach them the scriptures, teach them to sing, teach them to love the Lord. Mary and Joseph, of course, were godly parents wanting to do what God required of them. In fact, I hope you heard it, four different times in our passage, we're told that they were doing what was in accordance with God's law or the law of Moses or the traditions of the law. And then in Simeon's song, Simeon himself says, all that is happening is according to your word. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. We read that Mary and Joseph bring an offering to the temple. Two turtle doves or young pigeons is the Old Testament scripture that's quoted And just so you know, the context there is basically that you were to bring a lamb for the firstborn son. The idea is that the firstborn son belongs to God, and so an exchange happens where the lamb is given to God in place of the son. 
I mean, do I have to make all those connections for you? That's just beautiful. Uh, and, and so, uh, and then there's this, there's this caveat in the Old Testament law that basically says, if you can't afford a lamb, two turtle doves or two young pigeons will do. And those are a lot cheaper. And so what that tells us is that Mary and Joseph didn't have a lot of money. Indeed, the poverty into which our Lord was born is another reminder of, of what we call the humiliation of Christ, his humiliation throughout his earthly life and ministry. And when Mary and Joseph get to the temple, we meet this fellow named Simeon. If you'll join me at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is, the, the, the reassurance, the peace, the comfort that was going to come to Israel. And I, I don't, um, it, it's not too far a stretch to say that Luke has there in mind the words of Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, that is Simeon. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that's the according to your word, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon gets this promise that he's going to see the Messiah before he dies. And so he did. Verse 27, he came in the Spirit to the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And then Simeon starts talking. He takes him up in his arms, blessed God, and said... Lord, you are now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then he explains who the all peoples are a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You can see perhaps some similarity here between Simeon's song and his work here and the the work of the wise men bringing the gifts. By mysterious ways of God, they are told to keep watch. And after watching and watching, they see the star, they rejoice greatly. They're waiting to see the light, and when they see the light, they rejoice. So it is with Simeon. Of the four songs in our series, this one is probably my favorite, Simeon's song is about the promise of God delivered, which isn't it just cool to think how long that the thousands of years that Israel waited for her Messiah and the Lord selects this man and tells him, you're going to see the hope of Israel before you die. Heaven only knows how much Simeon knew about what was to come, about a cross and a resurrection and so on. But seeing Jesus here was, was, as it were, good enough for him. Simeon's song is about the promise of God delivered, the promise that had first been given to Adam and Eve. Standing in the garden, their lips still stained with the forbidden fruit. That's when they heard that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. And since that day, everyone had been waiting for a seed of the woman, for a baby from Adam's line to win the victory where Adam had surrendered and failed. And so this morning I want you to see at least three things from the Song of Simeon. I'll have actually a fourth point, a kind of closing uh, excursus or side note. I, I want you to see that the promise Simeon sings about, first the promise is seen, second the promise is prepared, third the promise is for all, And then as a way of concluding, I want to talk to you about shalom, peace, and a sword. And so first, the promise is seen. Look at verse 29. 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And you might be wondering, you actually could wonder this for any of the last three, I think except for the angel's song. Uh, um, but, but Zechariah's song, Mary's song, and here's Simeon's song. You might ask, did they really sing it? Right? The text is not especially clear. What we do have is that it's set up as poetic verse. So we know that at very least it was, it was sort of uh, 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 like in wisdom or poetic literature stated after that fashion. I think that means there's enough evidence to say it was a song. Uh, but even if it wasn't, what we find here is certainly something that is singable. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon has been waiting and watching. Now he's seen Jesus. Now he's seen uh, uh, little baby Jesus and in Jesus the salvation of God that had been promised. Now, as I said, we are not yet to the point of an agonizing prayer in a garden, a show trial before Pontius Pilate, a crucifixion, a resurrection, and so on. But Simeon doesn't need to see all of that because he can see that the salvation of God's people has indeed arrived. God was going to do everything else to save him, Simeon, and his people. Don't miss this though. The biggest personal implication for Simeon in that moment is that now he is ready to die. In Latin, the first two words of Simeon's song are nunc dimittis, which means now you are dismissing, right? That's what he's saying. Now, now Lord, you're, you're now dismissing me. Now I'm ready to die. We tend to assume when we read and, you know, we see this song that Simeon was very old. I, I think that's probably true, but actually there's nothing in the text that tells us he's old. What we should take from this text is that if you have the Lord Jesus, if you are young or old, if you have the Lord Jesus and the consolation of Israel, dear brother or sister, you are prepared to die. This is one of the great gifts that Jesus gives us. Fearlessness of death. Not, now let me be clear, not love of death, not worship of death, not a, say, a romanticizing of suicide, no, but a fearlessness of death. We would often like to think that the greatest gift we can get from Jesus is the avoidance of death or deliverance from death, and in a real sense, that's true. To that extent, that's a good desire. Death is, of course, the last enemy that Jesus means to kill on the last day. But when I go and do a hospital visitation, I pray a prayer in my car before I walk through the, the door at the hospital, which goes something like this. Lord, help me to help this dear saint, my brother, my sister, to be ready to receive deliverance and rescue, healing, or be prepared for a blessed, courageous, and triumphant death. I had the great joy this Christmas season of rereading the Screwtape Letters with a handful of folks in our church. I've, I've probably read it 10 or so times. I love it. And one of the things that jumped out at me this time was that the, the senior demon tells the junior demon, this man you're trying to tempt with fear 
Why are you hoping he dies? You idiot. (laughs) Are you stupid? If he dies, he goes straight to heaven and we lose. What is your only comfort in life and in death, right? You put that one up. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must, must work together for my salvation. Must isn't in there twice, but I I always say the must twice. Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. As short summaries of the great comfort of the Christian life go, I don't know if you can improve on that. I like it so much that I slapped it on the back of all my uh, business cards. So whenever I give a card with my information to someone, I'm also giving them that statement from Heidelberg 1 as a hopeful encouragement to them. But the, the first point I want to make clear to you, therefore, is that this promise is seen by Simeon, and it's seen by you, too. Every time we gather for worship, you again see the promises of God. More on that later. Second, the promise is prepared. Look at verse 31. The promise is prepared. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So this this great work that God has done in delivering on His promise back uh, uh, to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. God delivering on this promise... He's done, he's prepared it in the presence of everyone, of all peoples. This idea, it just fascinated me when I was preparing this sermon. The idea that God has prepared the fulfillment of his promise in public, if you like. God means for you to notice what he has done. You've prepared it in the sight of all peoples, in the presence of all peoples. One of the most spectacular realities of the Christian faith is that, well, is that it is rooted in a spectacular historical reality. You know, we we make use of the church calendar because it reminds us that the life of Jesus took place in real time and space. When we confess the Apostles' Creed, we say that our Lord Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now that's a little weird if you think about it, right? The, The creed is meant to be a sort of basic outline of Christian belief that we will speak and confess to each other until the end of time. So that's pretty important. (laughs) So why does Pontius Pilate, of all people, get a name drop? Why does a man of such cowardice get forever commemorated in the confession of our creed? The answer is because Pilate was a regional governor. And every time we say his name... When we are confessing our faith, we are reminded that the death of our Lord Jesus happened in a very specific region and place and time under the governance of a particular dude. You can today visit that place where Jesus stood before Pilate. God came to earth and he didn't keep it a secret. Now certainly there are times in Jesus' ministry where he, so to speak, lowers the volume of the announcements of his own work in ministry. 
Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is invested in controlling the amount of attention that he is getting so that, more than likely, so that the earthly powers take notice of him at the right time and not a minute earlier. You can't say that Jesus came to earth simply to secure celebrity status before men because he spoils every opportunity to become famous quickly. When the Apostle Paul was before Festus, the Roman governor in Judea at the time, Festus, after hearing Paul preach, asked him if he was out of his mind. Always a good sign when you're finished preaching if somebody asks you if you're insane. Acts 26, this is what we read. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. Remains respectful, right? But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. To him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Right? One of the remarkable things about the field of apologetics, right? the, the field in theology that's given to uh, not only articulation of the faith, but defense of it from objections and sort of, uh, 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 well, cynical, unbelieving objections. That's what apologetics is about. One of the remarkable things about that field is that we really do have fairly compelling evidence for the reality of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is remarkable what God has done in the sight of all people. I am not saying that there are not puzzling things in the Bible that are worth puzzling over. That's true enough. But honestly, when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus, there really aren't lingering, compelling questions. There are only answers and excuses. British theologian N.T. Wright, for all my many disagreements with him, did the church a magnificent service when he published the book Resurrection of the Son of God, where he basically demonstrates from historical evidence and reason that there is no good reason for a Jesus resurrection story to have popped up in the first century and survived, except that it actually happened. I mean, he makes the case so compellingly, going through every other possible explanation and showing it's completely empty of any value. Every other opinion, every other option requires too much dumb, okay? It just requires too much stupid. Uh, and so that the one you're left with is, it actually happened. This has not been done in a corner, Paul says. The great mystery has been set before us and before all people. And when we gather together to worship our Lord, we join the cloud of witnesses, including Simeon, our brother. And part of what we do and say and sing in covenant renewal worship is thank you, our Lord, for you've done it again. Thank you, our Father, because you've done it again. We've seen Jesus again. We've sung about his glory again. We've again heard His voice in the preached Word. We've again seen and touched and tasted His flesh and blood hidden behind bread and wine. You've done it again right in front of everyone. Right before our eyes and the eyes of our children. And so if we, can, we can go on to the, the third point then. right? So the promise is seen, the promise is prepared, and the promise is for all. Look at verse 32. This is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory 
to your people Israel. What's, what's cool about these four songs, Zechariah, Mary, Angels, and now Simeon, is that each one has given us a little bit more information about who this child is. When Zechariah has his speech restored, he sings out that this child will bring salvation by the forgiveness of sins. When Mary lifted up her voice, she sang about how the mighty would be brought down from their thrones and the humble would be exalted. We, that was our call to worship, and then we, we sang it in the Song of Mary as well. When the angels sang, they sang specifically about how this news was for all the people. We have a hint there, right, both Jews and Gentiles. Then it, that becomes explicit in Simeon's song, uh, where Simeon specifies that the child will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. This is one of the earliest and clearest New Testament expressions of God's plan and purpose in Christ. That the Messiah would spread His kingdom over all the nations. This is the whole basis for our evangelism. The fact that we do evangelism not just around the neighborhood and the city, but around the world. The reason why we do evangelism around the world is because every bit of it belongs to Jesus. We want every nation, therefore, every people, to know Christ because that's what Jesus wants. That's the authority that's been given to Him. That's what He means to accomplish. Jesus Christ is God's light to all the nations. That's what Simeon says. This Christ child that he, he's holding in his arms is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So we know and confess that this whole world is covered in the darkness of sin. In many places, the ignorance of God and His Word. Jesus comes as light into darkness, right? It's one of the great themes that we sing about and talk about especially at this season, that Jesus comes as light into darkness. That's the symbolism of the Advent candles, right? That, that light, more and more as we go through the four weeks, it's getting brighter and brighter in here. The light is advancing, and the darkness can do nothing about the advancement of the light except to be scattered and removed. The light comes to scatter. I knew somebody better say amen to that. I heard you, whoever you are. The light comes to scatter the darkness and cover the nations, and it comes to scatter the darkness in your heart and in my heart as well. Because darkness is where we hide. Darkness is where we stumble and trip and fall. Darkness is where we have no sense of our surroundings, right? Of the world that God made and how we are to live in it. And Jesus Christ comes as light. This is why there is always, a, always, in some form or fashion, an evangelistic element to our gathered worship. Now, we don't, we don't shape our gathered corporate worship around, say, the tastes and preferences of unbelievers, but to any who might find themselves wandering in to our strange, weird, otherworldly worship time, we say, this is Christ for all. He's for all. He's for you. He's freely offered to you in the gospel. Come and see. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So as I begin to wrap this up, I said the conclusion was called Shalom and a Sword. If you look at verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
That's actually the line uh, that's used in our confession of sin this morning, which comes out of the Book of Common Prayer. That's where this line comes from about the thoughts and intentions of our heart. This is the part of the this is part of Christmas that we probably don't talk about enough. What I mean is, I mean the parts we do talk about a lot, and last Sunday's no exception. The the angels show up singing about peace, peace on earth, goodwill to men, and so forth. You see, the angels sing about peace on earth, God's favor being given to men, and so it is, so it was. So Jesus brought peace, yes and amen, but how? How did He bring peace? Not by overwhelming everyone in the room with images of a cute baby in a manger. Jesus brought peace in the same way the Allies brought peace to France on D-Day, okay? He brings peace by picking a fight. Later in his ministry, recorded in Matthew 10, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, which is it, peace or a sword? And the answer is both. Jesus makes peace by picking a fight with the powers. Simeon said this child is coming to bring, comes to bring the rising and falling of many in Israel. He comes to divide. He comes to polarize. He comes to remove the middle ground and say, there is following me and there is death. In fact, many of you will probably remember, I mean, this, uh, you know, this amazing moment in Jesus' ministry, right? They think he's asleep. They're caught in the middle of a storm. They wake him up. He stands up and rebukes the weather, and it quickly obeys. And one of the guys in the boat says, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who are we in the boat with? Who are we dealing with? That is the appropriate response to seeing Jesus. You don't say, Isn't this a nice fellow who tells me everything's going to go easily for me and reassures me of my great and magnificent potential? Simeon speaks of a sword. And many in history have tried to soften the claims of Jesus, but we cannot get away from the cut of this blade. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, essentially, you will follow me or you will run yourself into hell. That sword cuts. It divides us goes through families. It goes through friendships. It's even been known to go through churches. Sometimes it hurts. Following Jesus does bring this kind of a sacrifice with it. This is why Simeon says to Mary, he says, a sword will pierce your own heart also. Now our minds, of course, immediately go to the crucifixion. We know Mary was there, right? Jesus tells John to take care of her. But also keep in mind I mean, the death of Joseph, much earlier than anyone expected, I would gather. The moment when she and the other children come to get him, right? The prophet is without honor and so on. They come to get him and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Ooh. Mary did not make it through the work of the Messiah without some pain and trial and affliction. But that's how it always goes though, right? That's how it always goes. Coming to Christ always involves a real measure of trial and affliction. We follow a crucified man. How did you think this was going to go? Part of the work in this life is to faithfully carry 
the afflictions that Jesus, that the, that the ascended Christ in heaven is distributing. Right? I remember hearing one pastor say, Jesus is in heaven, heaven distributing crosses to carry. He's doing a lot of other things, but that image is stuck with me. The idea that Jesus would say, okay, your cross is up. Here it is. Now, as far as that sword goes, as far as that cutting goes, the first cut that we feel is called repentance. And it's a cut we feel plenty of times after that along the way. Repentance is the acknowledgement that you are the least qualified person to run your life. Repentance is the acknowledgement that your assessment of yourself and your needs and your desires is probably stupid and destructive. Repentance is admitting you've made an absolute mess of it. And apart from God's own intervention by word and spirit, the mess is only going to get bigger. And that you need the firm guidance of your shepherd who made you and who knows you better than you. Does anything about that sound easy, brothers and sisters? That's why I called it the first cut of the blade. It's hard. It's terribly hard. And it's painful. And it is the only way to find peace. It is the only way to find peace. It is the only way to find peace. So as we begin to conclude this whole sermon series, I want to close by observing that this song, the Song of Simeon, sometimes called the the Nuke Dimittis in church history uh, in Latin. For, For a whole lot of church history, a whole lot of Christians worshiping together, this song has been used as a song of dismissal to, to, to close the worship service. And I hope that after the sermon today, you can get a clearer picture of why. When we gather for worship, we're called in by God's Word, and we appear before Him on His terms. It's why we confess our sins. It's why we pray. It's why we hear the Word. It's why we feast at the table. We do not create and fashion ideas about how we might like to worship God. We appear before Him on His terms. And that's why God's people have often sung this song at the close of a service. In so doing, we're singing, Lord, now let Your servants depart in peace. Do we mean, Lord, dismiss us to go home now? Yes, yes, But remember Simeon, we're also saying, Lord, we're ready to die. We've sang the joyful praises of the greatest news we've ever heard. We've lifted up our prayers before our Father, who always hears us and is near to those who hurt. We've heard our Lord Jesus speak to us through the preached word empowered by the Holy Spirit. We've feasted at the table where we've shared bread and wine. We've received spiritual food. We've fed on Christ. And should I drop dead in the parking lot, I'm ready to go. Oh, that we would see rightly all the rich glories that God has seen fit to conceal inside this thing we call a worship service. The closer we look, the more treasure we find. And so, in a moment, we're going to sing a contemporary arrangement of the Nuke Dimittis, of the Song of Simeon. It includes a, it's a paraphrase of Simeon's song, and then it closes with the Gloria Patri, right? Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so on. And my, my hope and my prayer 
is that, is that singing it will be part of how we rightly orient our hearts to, to see the quiet glory of the ways the Lord Jesus comes to us, uh, to, to, to quote Simeon, according to your word, according to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the celebration of Advent and for the words and the singing of your servant, Simeon. We ask uh, that you would continue to feed your people as we're gathered here today and as we'll keep gathering uh, here and in so many other places according to your word, constituted by your word, called in by you, illuminated by your Holy Spirit. Lord, grant that our sweet songs would be uh, and and our worship of you would be uh, deeply embedded and woven into our our day-in, day-out fellowship with one another. These gifts are from your hand, and so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.